You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, another energy firm ups its ESG disclosure, activists turn their eyes to Europe, and an update on MIFID 2. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's a weekly roundup of the top stories and headlines from around the world of investor relations. We're back from the dead. Well, it's Friday the 13th at least. And we're back in the pod studio and it's Tin Human and Garnet Roach. Morning, guys. Morning, Morning. Laurie. Before we turn to IR, there is a fantastic story here, which uh, Janet showed us all this morning from Wales. Traders in a rural town called Crick Howell have been taking cues from companies like Facebook, Google, Starbucks by exploring some loopholes to avoid paying UK tax. Their solution is to register the town as an offshore entity, copying measures which see global brands like the aforementioned pay little or no corporation tax. As described in what I think is probably the best line in the article, uh, the Brecon Beacons tax rebellion is led by traders, including, quote, the town's salmon smoker, local coffee shop, bookshop, optician and bakery, and could spread nationwide. It's all fleshed out in a BBC Two documentary called The Town That Went Offshore, which is set to air next year. The measures aren't intended to, you know, avoid taxes for those businesses. Rather, they want to draw some attention to the issue and the larger companies getting away, you know, with tax fraud on quite a large scale. Um, I think it's fantastic, and Crickhow is already quite close to my heart, it being the town nearest to my favourite festival in the world. Um, should we all move there and go offshore, guys? Never pay any tax again? I could return to my Welsh roots. Yeah? You know, my family are from Haverford West in Pembrokeshire. So. I mean, you can tell with the really thick accent going it. that's... Refer to me as Gannett, I think, my Welsh accent. I really like the idea of going offshore. I mean, there's something very glamorous sounding about it, isn't it? You know, when you need to go and have a meeting with your accountant, do you need to pop on a plane and go to Bermuda and, you know, take a few days in the sun? It's slightly less glamorous when you're popping down to the Brecon Beacons. Yeah, and I, think, no, I think the reality is rather, rather less um, exciting <laughs> than that. One of them, I read, read in that article, actually, that one of, one of the companies had discovered that they had paid uh, more corporation tax than Facebook, which had only paid £5,000 last year. Um, so obviously they were quite disappointed about that. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how the tax bill of the, the, the local coffee shop in Crick Howell compares to, you know, Starbucks, for example. Yeah, exactly. And who knows, maybe some kind of active takeover might change the fortune of these businesses and see them properly avoid some tax. Because, Tim, I believe you've been looking at the growing influence of shareholder activism on mainland Europe. So maybe it'll make its way to Wales, too. Yes, we've seen a few examples of shareholder activism growing outside of North America this year. Um, something that was always expected to happen with activist assets growing and, and funds looking for new targets. For example, the number of activist campaigns in Asia um, has doubled over the last two years. But what I wanted to discuss today was a recent report that has highlighted some of the changes taking place in Europe. A study from the law firm Linklaters finds that activist activity in Europe has grown by 126% over the last five years. So more than doubled then. Did it give any explanations for this surge? Broadly, the authors of the report put this down to uh, low valuations in Europe and also the expectation among investors that companies should be doing better now the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis has faded. I guess on top of that, it's simply the fact already mentioned that activists have been attracting a lot of money. They've been very successful and so they're just they're conducting more campaigns and so we're just seeing more activity in general. And are any countries or sectors being targeted in particular? The report makes some interesting points about where activism is taking place within Europe. Unsurprisingly, the UK is the most popular location for activist actions, as the report puts it, uh, seeing 32 this year so far. After that, France is the next hotspot with 13 actions, followed by Austria on 11 and Switzerland on 9. So companies in these markets should pay particular attention to what activists are doing. That's where activity seems to be concentrated at the moment. Activist activity, I like the phrase. And what about, what about sectors? The report finds a fairly broad spread of campaigns across sectors. 
the financial sector is the most popular, with 30% of all actions, followed by services on 23%. You then have commodities on 19% and tech on 13%. Notably, if you look back four years to 2011, then financials made up about 50% of all activity and services a further quarter. So while these two sectors are still the most popular for activism in Europe, we can see how activists have been broadening the types of companies and sectors that they're willing to target. Uh, that's interesting, the broadening aspect, because like you say, you'd almost expect, particularly the financial quarter, because, you know, because there are so many, uh, so many high-profile instances of, you know, of, of, of investors coming on and making changes to you know, CEO pay, for example, or something similar. I think it's going to be really interesting when it opens up into different sectors and we start seeing you know, some slightly different kinds of activism happening yeah and i think the, the general trend has been you know if you go back five ten years it was you know companies that were in trouble basically and 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 smaller companies that were getting targeted and now it doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter how big you are what sector in you are in you, you could become a target and we've seen that with companies like apple hugely successful very large very popular companies still being pressured by people like carl Icahn. and i guess it's all in the name of shareholder value so no real complaints anywhere well, if you'd like to find a bit more out about activism and particularly how IR can respond to it, there will be a special report in the upcoming winter edition of IR magazine, which should be winging its way to you, I think, sometime in January. It's in the winter edition, so uh, it, it should be published by the end of November. Yes, yeah, sorry, Tim has a much better gr- grip on the editorial deadlines than I do, clearly. Moving on to another expert at the table, Garnet. We're returning to you and your favourite topic of all, and it's Mifid too. You found out some more implications from the upcoming European le- legislation, is that right? Well, it's been a very exciting week for me. I do <laughs> love a Mifid story, and... As Mifid stories go, this one is pretty big. And so it looks like uh, the wide-ranging European regulation, which was designed to be a single rulebook for European markets as a response to the 2008 financial crisis, is likely to be delayed by a year. This would push Mifid II's start date from January 3rd, 2017 into January 2018. According to various media outlets, Martin Merlin, a senior European Commission official, told the European Parliament's Economic Affairs Committee on Tuesday the, quote, simplest and most legally sound approach would be to delay the whole package by one year. At the same time, Stephen Major, chairman of the European Securities and Markets Authority, or ESMA, also warned the committee that a delay to at least parts of the reform would be necessary to allow banks and brokers time to update their IT systems to comply with the very complex new rules. The FT quoted him as saying, The timing for stakeholders and regulators alike to implement the rule and build the necessary IT systems is extremely tight. There are areas where the calendar is already unfeasible. How much support would such delay have? Well, there has been kind of ongoing lobbying in the financial industry against certain aspects of MIFID II, which takes in you know, a huge range of things from conflicts of interest around research to dark pools, bond pricing and much, much more. Others who have been involved in the very lengthy and complex implementation process have warned that a delay could leave markets vulnerable while also risking a loss of momentum. And a huge amount of work has gone into getting MIFID II even to this point. It was first proposed in October 2011 and then two years of negotiations followed before a deal on the final version was agreed by national governments in the EU Parliament last year. And while the final text was published in June 2014, the law itself didn't actually contain enough detail to be implemented, which left ESMA the task of drafting the technical implementing standards, which ran into more than a thousand pages, which actually require creating some techniques, such as one for measuring market liquidity pretty much from scratch. And so the final batch of the implementing standards was published by ESMA in September, but the European Parliament, which has to actually approve these standards, has already said that it's not happy with some of the aspects. 
And what all this means is that there's actually little time left for the practical logistics, especially in terms of the complicated IT systems that will need to be put into place. So I guess the other question is how likely is this delay to actually last a year? It is quite likely, um, though at the moment the question seems to be more about whether lawmakers will opt to delay the implementation in full, which is the European Commission's preference, or choose to delay only the more difficult aspects of MIFID II, which in turn would prove more complex legally. So what, they actually separate some of the rules out into different bits of legislation and try and pass different bits of Exactly, that's the idea, that's, that, that's what some people are proposing, but... That does sound complicated. <laughs> it's all very complicated. Um, well, Garnet, I'm sure you will be the first to tell us of any updates there. And we will I will. I'm abreast. on the Mifid case. Time to touch in again with another story we've been covering over the past couple of weeks, and that is the case of energy firms and their climate change disclosure problems. Last week, of course, we heard about the New York Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, and his announcement of an investigation into ExxonMobil to find out whether the company had lied to investors about risks to its business, the industry, and potential climate-changing effect of burning fossil fuels. This week, Peabody Energy, which is the world's largest publicly traded coal producer, was facing down some of the same accusations on the back of a two-year investigation also led by the New York Attorney General. Peabody has already announced an agreement to strengthen its disclosure practices, particularly when it comes to financial risks due to potential climate change, but it will not face a fine at the moment. Investigators uh, couldn't provide concrete evidence that investors suffered financial damage due to any disclosure failures. And what were Peabody accused of in particular? Well, a press release distributed by Schneiderman says that Peabody repeatedly denied um, in filings to the SEC that potential regulations regarding climate change would have a financial impact on the company, quite similar to the ExxonMobil incident, really, uh, even though internal projections predicted dramatic effects. Uh, In one example, Peabody's projections predicted aggressive regulation would lower the dollar value of coal by at least 33%, um, and a potential $20 per tonne carbon tax would lower demand for coal in the US by as much as 53%. So quite a big impact on their business, really. Schneiderman says in the press release, quote, as a publicly traded company whose core business generates massive amounts of carbon emissions, Peabody Energy has a responsibility to be honest with its investors and the public about the risks posed by climate change now and in the future. He goes on to say that examples set by Peabody of you know, properly disclosing the impact that fossil fuel burning and other companies like them might lead investors to think long and hard about the damage that they're these companies are doing to our planet. But it's not all about gas emissions and oil spills, however. Um, we had a video put up on the website uh, with an interview with Lindsay Wright, who's the head of IR at UK betting company William Hill. It was just before our European Awards this year, and she chatted to Neil Stewart, who's IR Magazine's editorial director, about how CSR reporting and proper disclosure actually extends just beyond a consideration for the natural environment. When we talk about sustainability, the heritage to a large extent has come from the environmental impact side. Actually, when you stand back and you think about what really is sustainability for your specific company, there are issues that naturally naturally float to the surface. And in our case, we've had a lot of regulatory scrutiny around problem gambling, particularly over the last couple of years. And that's given a level of media profile as well as government profile um, in a way that has significantly impacted the valuation of the business for a couple of years. Um, That means we've had to be much more transparent in what we already do in the business. The challenge in some ways was we were already doing a lot of good work. We weren't necessarily communicating it. So for us, the transparency piece has been more important, really to help not only government, but actually our investors also understand how much we're already doing. Because the biggest piece for us around sustainability has been the uncertainty it's created in the market of the risk of us being regulated more or regulated differently in a way that could affect our revenues and therefore ultimately our profits. 
So it's interesting to hear that. I think it's an issue we're going to keep coming back to and one that will increasingly be discussed at the IR table and will probably move beyond just gas emissions, climate change, that kind of thing, and move into a whole wider world of corporate responsibility. I remember that we interviewed the head of IR at Peabody a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. And interestingly then, I mean, coal was, you know, it's one of the dirtiest ways to produce energy, but the company was still doing fantastically well. And it was a bit like tobacco. There's this feeling that at some point it could get phased out. A lot of people are against it, but there's actually a huge amount of demand for it still. I think what's happened in the, subs- in, in the years since that interview was that the whole climate change, especially climate change as it relates to investment and what carbon assets are worth and things like that, that's all changed and that's had a big impact on sort of Peabody and, you know, and other energy companies. Be interesting to see um, whether coal companies will respond to divestment campaigns um, or kind of increased disclosure requirements by moving some of their focus into countries that perhaps don't have these requirements, such as uh, the tobacco industry did. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also, I also find it interesting that everyone seems to be quite aware that burning fossil fuels is bad and has a very bad effect on the environment, and yet it's up to the companies to tell us about it. And actually, maybe it's something of a, you know increasing social conscience with investors and you know just the general public that there's a bit more pressure on companies to tell the truth effectively. For a bit more information about the, the best disclosures in Southeast Asia and Greater China, look at that for a seamless link, then you might be interested to hear that the IR Magazine Awards and Conference for Greater China and Southeast Asia 2015 are kicking off at the beginning of December. If you want a bit more information, you can check out the events section of our website, www.irmagazine.com forward slash events. But they're happening on Wednesday, December the 2nd, 2015 in Hong Kong. That's the Greater China event. And Friday, December the 4th, 2015, that's in Singapore. That's the Southeast Asia event. Uh, Do get in contact with us or check out the details on the website if you need some more information. We'll be giving you a couple more insights into the movers and shakers, the nominees and potentially the winners in the run-up to that. As always, you can follow us at IR Magazine on Twitter and check out all of the podcasts, including the fantastic IR Magazine Asks podcast produced by Jeff Cazette, uh, which is a look at some of the empirical data from around the investor relations world, soundcloud.com forward slash IR Magazine. But for now, we're going to go and try to avoid black cats and ladders overhanging pavements and the like. Uh, thanks again, guys, for joining us this week. Cheers, Thank Laurie. You, Laurie. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.